You know, when you're having trouble coming up with something nice and positive to say about an episode of television, sometimes you just have to go with your favorite part. You know what my favorite part of him is? Ricky Lindholm, who is on screen for all of a minute and a half and who doesn't do anything particularly Lindholmy during that time. But she reminds me that Garfunkel and Oates exists, and that gives me comfort. Sometimes you got to work for your delight, kids. Hi, and welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer vlog and podcast. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about him, the sixth episode of season seven. Him aired on November 5th, 2002, and was written by Drew Z. Greenberg, with Rebecca Rand Kirshner as executive story editor and Drew Z. Greenberg as story editor. This episode was directed by Michael Gershman, who we last saw in the director's chair for Seeing Red. Him is one of those episodes not unlike scene sixes all the way, that arrives during a lull in the big season arc, takes up 43 minutes of your time, and then lumbers off again, soon to be forgotten. Him has never made much of an impression on me, aside from being kind of a meh-nothing episode. I've always disliked it, but until this critical read, I never looked into the reasons why I disliked it so much. I'm going to do that now. And those of you who enjoy ranty, angry Lonnie... Get out the popcorn. We play this whole Letterman jacket love spell like it's funny, and I'm not going to lie, the jokes in this episode are solidly constructed. They are, if you don't think about the broader implications of the story, actually pretty funny. But if you do think about it, it's not funny. Consent issues are very, very serious. And when I say we have a rape culture, this episode is evidence of what I'm talking about. Rape culture is not about celebrating rape, everyone walking around saying, hey, that rape's such a great thing. That's not rape culture. Rape culture is the insidious and unquestioned belief that a man's right to a woman's mind and body overrides her right to her mind and body. A belief that runs so deep within our culture that it's the basis of our jokes. This episode is Exhibit A of Rape Culture, written by a group of talented, funny, progressive, and good people who honestly, I firmly believe, didn't see it. I mean, I've seen this episode, what, 10 times? It wasn't until I watched it for this podcast that I even saw this. I am not, let me repeat, am not condemning Drew Z. Greenberg or any of the writers on this show. I'm condemning a culture that is so insidious, it took me multiple watches of this episode to even see what was right in front of my face. And I'm one of the people who looks for it. There's an allegory David Foster Wallace used to tell about two young fish swimming along in the river. An older fish passes by in the opposite direction, and he says, hey guys, how's the water? The older fish goes on his way, and the two younger fish look at each other and say, what's water? Now, David Foster Wallace used that allegory to make one point, and I often use it in my lectures and workshops to make another, about storytelling, how we're so immersed in it that we often don't even see it around us, and yet there we are, breathing it in with every inhalation. This is also true of racism, sexism, and rape culture. This is how we can make jokes about women losing all control around a pretty young man, so much that they would kill themselves, kill others, steal and magically transition a boy from one gender to another without his consent. Buffy sees this boy's jacket and takes him into a room to have sex while under the influence. Sex under the influence is rape, not humor. 
It's rape. And you know what? It's okay to tell that story. It's not just okay. It's important to tell that story. We need these stories. We need to talk about these things and we need to see them. But when the text itself takes as read that this kind of cultural presumption isn't serious, isn't bad, is in fact funny, that's where my problem comes in. I mean, we destroy the jacket and get everyone's minds back, and the general consensus is that RJ is a bit of a scoundrel, but we're not horrified. Can you imagine if we had laughed at Spike's rape attempt? That's rape culture. When we say, hey, lighten up, it's not a big deal, what's your problem? Boys will be boys. Aren't they cute? In this episode, we are looking at rape culture and humiliation fantasy aimed at women, and we are saying, huh, lighten up, isn't it funny? Let me answer that for you. No, it's not funny. We also get an overwhelming amount of gross Xander in this episode. Let's take a look at the supercut. I don't want a new cheerleading outfit. No, no, let's not be hasty. It's a jacket. It's true, something about the big letter on the chest makes girls get all swoony and crushy. I saw it all the time in school. You couldn't just pin any old felt letter to your coat and get play. Not that I tried. Daddy like. Love spells. People forget how dangerous they can be. Hey, been there. Good times. Here. Xander, be honest. You didn't, you know, think about slipping that jacket on just a little bit. I refuse to answer that on the grounds that it didn't fit. And let's not forget, this is the same Xander who is so concerned about Spike attacking Buffy again in the opening scene. So let me get this straight. It's really bad for a man to physically enforce his will on women, but it's kind of funny for him to magically enforce his will. As long as there aren't bruises, it's no longer a bad thing. If there aren't bruises, it's funny. Is this what we're saying? Really? I can't even talk about the misogynistic abuse the women then heap on each other over this boy. All I have to say is that if I hear the word slut one more time, I'm really going to have to punch someone. I would prefer that someone to be RJ. Okay, so the rape culture upon which this episode is built obviously infuriates and offends me, but I'm going to try to set that aside so that we can have a discussion about the episode itself that isn't full of cursing and anger. I don't want to be so overwhelmed by one disgusting undercurrent in our culture that I don't see the work for the work's sake, so I'm going to make this emphatic statement right up front and then leave it so that I can talk about the rest of what's going on here in him. All right, we've obviously already gotten into the weeds. Let's go get into some different weeds. In him, Dawn falls under the love spell of a teenage boy, and it makes her so crazy that she goes out for cheerleading which traditionally has never ended well for Summer's Girl. Go, RJ! Ah! sends demon assassins out to kill Anya. He's, uh, not had a vengeance for nothing. And Buffy invites Anya to move in where she can be safe. Well, I, I guess you guys could use my help. Spike moves out of the school basement and into Xander's apartment, making Xander miserable but delighting pretty much everyone else. I invite you in, Nimrod. I don't want your sodding food anyway. After Dawn goes a bit too far to get RJ's attention, Buffy talks to the boy at school and then falls under the spell herself. I'm not really older at all, actually. Just like you. But with the sexual experience and stuff. 
When RJ comes to the house, Willow and Anya also fall under the spell. His physical presence has a penis. I can work around it. Spike and Xander play Hardy Boys, discover that the source of the magic is RJ's letterman's jacket, and pull off a complicated heist to foil his dastardly plans. Dawn, Buffy, Willow, and Anya all do crazy things to prove their fake love, but Willow's plan wins on both inventiveness and daring. Create a daughter from us. Oh man, now I've got to start all over. Finally, with the spell ended in the nick of time, the women confess all the stupid things they almost did for love. Except Anya, who didn't almost do anything. And now the latest on Sunnydale's late night bandit who is still at large. Okay, great, ice cream, my treat. This is not the first time we've dealt with love spells on Buffy. As Xander so wistfully recalls, he nearly incited a murderous riot among a gang of women in season two's Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Of course, he was only going for the mind control in one woman, Cordelia, so that makes it still not okay. Buffy also sexually offered herself to the object of the spell, in that case, Xander, and the fact that Xander said no is the only reason why he's still alive today. And while we're on the topic, let's not celebrate Xander as a hero for saying no to Buffy. That doesn't make him exceptional. It is the lowest level of decent human being that you can be, not raping your friend while she's under the influence of a love spell. Xander does not get a cookie on this one. We went to a love spell again in season three with Lover's Walk when Spike returns to town after being dumped by Drusilla, looking for a powerful young witch named Willow to perform a love spell on her and make her take him back. He fails, as Spike always does, and the fact that both he and Drusilla are vampires who live in darkness makes it not okay, but at least the person in pursuit of the spell is a villain, even if we do kind of love him while he's doing it. I mean, oh my god, the love's bitch speech? You're not friends. You'll never be friends. You'll be in love till it kills you both. You'll fight, and you'll shag, and you'll hate each other till it makes you quiver, but you'll never be friends. Love isn't brains, children. It's blood. Blood screaming inside you to work its will. I may be love's bitch, but at least I'm man enough to admit it. Okay, so the Spike love spell is kind of on the bubble because he's clearly a villain, clearly a bad guy, it's clearly a bad thing. And this is Spike at his most vulnerable and most lovable, even as he is, like so many men on the show, trying to take away the agency of the woman he supposedly loves. The only thing that mitigates this even a little is that he is absolutely a villain, and we condemn the act. And let's not forget, Spike, our villain, our bad guy is the only one who stops and decides not to cast the love spell. He knows the way to get Drusilla back is to be the monster she fell in love with in the first place, and he leaves town with a song in his heart and a plan to honestly earn his woman back, rather than take her by force. Another wider-netted love spell happened in season four's Superstar, when Jonathan put the whole world under a love spell that also made him exceptional in just about every way, except morally because he kept a pair of Swedish twins warm in his bed the whole time. A pair of twins who were not in control of their minds and thus unable to consent and were being raped daily. Oh, that Jonathan. What a scoundrel. 
In season six, we see Jonathan being a party to yet another mind control spell, although I'd put it at more of a domination spell than a love spell, when he creates the orbs that Warren used to charm Katrina in Dead Things. Aside from how we view Warren in Dead Things, we are encouraged to view these guys as scoundrels and rapscallions, adorable little misled boys who made a tiny error in judgment. I find it starkly disappointing to return to this mindset after the clarity we got from Katrina in Dead Things. You bunch of little boys playing at being men. Well, this is not some fantasy. It's not a game, you freaks. It's rape. What? Now, RJ, although he is quite clearly an entitled douchebag, gets some slack because it doesn't appear that he understands the power of the jacket. I think he just thinks he really is that charming, especially when he's got a bit of a chill. Using that charm to manipulate women, even if it was just his own mundane magic, you know, is kind of gross. But without conscious knowledge of what this actual magic was doing, he and his brother can be seen as just a couple of entitled little idiots who truly did not know what was happening. Their father, however, let's be clear, is an asshole. That letterman's jacket isn't old enough to go back another generation, so the buck stops with that predatory dickwad. I would also like to acknowledge here that when our women are unlucky in love, they may turn to magic, but usually not to control others. When Willow is heartbroken by Oz's departure in season four, Something Blue, the magic she attempts is to simply heal her own pain, not to deny him his agency in leaving. When Anya is devastated by Xander leaving her at the altar, she turns to vengeance, but vengeance is at least straightforward. The only time a female character has come close to this kind of behavior was season six Willow, when she made Tara forget their fight in all the way, and then she attempts again to control Tara's mind in Tabula Rasa. First of all, once again, our victim, still a woman. Second of all, because of Willow's actions, she lost everything that mattered to her. After Bewitch bothered and bewildered, Xander got his girl back. You know, the girl whose mind he attempted to control? Jonathan's only punishment after the events of Superstar was going back to his regular life. At the end of Lover's Walk, Spike left town with a hopeful new perspective on getting Drusilla back, and that's okay because he called off the love spell. After the events of Dead Things, yes, eventually Warren, you know, got flayed, but wasn't as a consequence for Katrina. There was never a consequence for what he did to Katrina, either the mind control or the murder. RJ? lost his jacket, and that's the least offensive of all of them because I think it's fairly textual that the little idiot really had no idea what was going on. Look, I know I said I wasn't going to go off on rape culture, and I'm actually not. Now, I'm going off on the patriarchy. And now I owe Jenny and Kate at Buffering Cast a dollar. We do have a heavily weighted sense of consequence depending on whether the perpetrator is a man or a woman, and our love spell victims are always women. The only time we ever see a man fall under a love spell is when Spike and Buffy fall in love in something blue, but they're both under the spell, so he isn't a victim of magical domination within the relationship. And honestly, I gotta tell you, I don't know why Buffy doesn't check for the influence of magic anytime she thinks a guy is hot. I mean, after a while, you just gotta roll the odds. Anyway, in something blue, that spell is a misfire. No one is actively trying to take away anyone's agency. Willow has absolutely no idea what she's doing. So in something blue, the fact that we see it as funny is okay, because there's no underlying darkness that we're pretending isn't there, or waving away because the perpetrator happens to be in possession of a penis. Some years ago, while watching Desperate Housewives, I noticed how completely dickish the character of Tom Scavo was, and yet, in the textual world of Desperate Housewives, he was held up as the pinnacle of husbandhood. 
I coined the term Scavonian dissonance then, which references the cognitive dissonance that occurs when a character who is clearly awful isn't held accountable for that awfulness. It is when the reality of reality and the reality of the textual world collide, and the audience sees something clearly that the creators do not. Often, Scavonian dissonance favors men and white people who are behaving badly because that bad behavior has been accepted in a culture that has long been dominated by men and white people. And this isn't to say all men are bad or all white people are bad, but if you are a man or you are a white person or anybody with extended privilege, it's time to wake up to this shit and start seeing the damage that occurs when our cultural properties don't present the same baseline decency for everyone, regardless of class, race, gender. You name the imaginary partition we use to create a hierarchy for human value and guaranteed it's bullshit. And you can have bad guys who do bad things, but people who behave badly need to be held accountable for that behavior. Anyone who gets away with anything is to be given a severe side eye. No, Spike definitely seems a little more cogent, less. But I'm just saying, once you get back to soul, doesn't that mean you start like picking up your own wet towels off the floor? We open this episode with Spike moving in with Xander, and while Xander reviles the plan, I freaking love the plan. Spike and Xander together are the hell-mouth odd couple of my personal choice, and if there was a way that I could have them sharing digs in front of a live studio audience, I might make that happen. While there are a lot of big problems in this episode, the teaming up of Xander and Spike to figure out the mystery and foil the plan is really fun. And I kind of wish we'd put the crazy effects of the love spell on the back burner and made this episode about the buddy cop relationship between Xander and Spike. If during the course of the investigation they had bonded, Xander had maybe seen something of value in Spike with a soul. If we had examined the emotional connection at the core of the masculine relationship, this episode might have had some interesting things to say. If the him part of this story had been kind of like the Zeppo, we see the crazy happening in the background, but what's being explored is the often ignored masculine friendship. That could have been really interesting. And at the end, we could have had a nice bookend with Xander and Spike hanging out in his apartment, maybe bickering a little, but with a sense of mutual respect that wasn't there before. And now I want that episode. I want Xander to find a male friend in an unexpected place. I want Spike to see something of worth in Xander, for them to come to some sort of understanding between them, to have a moment when they genuinely like each other and work together well. Would have been fun. It's too bad. I can't believe I almost... I can't believe I almost... It was a spell. We were helpless. We're not responsible for anything we did morally or, you know, legally. Devastatingly poor gender politics and humiliation fantasy as humor aside, there isn't much left to him. Much like the remnants of Buffy's cheerleading outfit, it just sort of sits there, a tattered reminder of what could have been. The story is written competently. It sets up a central conflict. It escalates that conflict. The jokes are well-constructed. Funny, even, if you don't think about the price that we pay culturally for that humor. The dialogue is fun. The movement of the story is well-paced. When I teach my students the technicals of writing, and when it comes to writing, the only thing you can teach are the technicals, I often compare story mechanics to a train. The central narrative conflict is the fuel, structure is the tracks, but that's just what keeps the train focused and moving. The cargo is what matters. The cargo is the magic. Building a well-built train that hums quietly along, carrying a wonderful cargo through a path to its destination, that's the thing. That's the goal. 
A well-built train humming quietly along, carrying a load of poison? Not so great. I do not believe it was anybody's intent to deliver poison in him or to encourage a poison that already existed. The writers did their thing. I'm not going to say this was a meticulously well-built train. We have moments that are out of character, even for our unaffected characters. And the whole 1970s heist movie reference makes no sense. I know we've been expanding the visual language of Buffy, but that's just a flat visual reference and has no story relevance whatsoever. They're not pulling off a heist. This is not leverage. So him, even without the poisonous cargo, is a flawed episode of television. The best thing I can say about it is that it's forgettable. I forget it every time I watch season seven and think that Beneath You is the worst this season has to offer. Him has shown me that is untrue. But it's okay. There are more cars coming down the train track, and some of them have cargo that will knock your socks off in a good way. All right, that'll do it for today. Remember to visit Chipperish Media at chipperish.com for more great podcasts, including Still Dead, an angel podcast, which will start production when we hit our next stretch goal on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish for more information. And speaking of amazing train cars with incredible cargo, I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Season 7, Episode 7, Conversations with Dead People. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a chipperish media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish.